All right, so I'm going to ask you a question, and you've probably already, you don't have to answer it because there's like, you know, 80 or 90 of you in here, so uh, you don't have to answer it, but you've been, been asked this question probably once at least, maybe 20 times today, and this is the question, how are you? You've been asked that already today? I probably asked it when you came through the door, right? Because it's just the natural question. It's the thing we, we, we stay or we say when we, uh, when we just have an initial interaction. We say, good morning, how are you? And you know what the response is? Good. <laughs> that's always the response, even when that's a dirty lie, you know. Um, that's okay. Like, I'm not judging anybody. I, you know, we, we have, we have uh, you know, we don't want to have a long conversation most of the time when we're just saying good morning to someone. So I get it. Uh, how are you is a loaded question, though, isn't it? It's a really loaded question. And I bet if, ev- if every one of you lined up and just took turns to talk to me uh, in my office and I sat down f- across from you and I said, how are you, and just let you talk, you'd talk for two hours. Easily, right? I mean, easily. Um, and that's assuming I don't have anything to say, right? Like, that's, that's one of those things. Like, it's just such a loaded question. How are you is... is uh, it's just something we throw around so easily, and yet it's something we really do need to get to the bottom of. And we need, we need to process how we're doing. And um, I actually think that getting to the true answer, and I'm not saying you have to do this with every person who says, asks that question, right? Uh, there are some people who are in your life that you can spill more uh, of, your, of your guts to and others that you are just going to exchange pleasantries with. That's okay. But I'm going to guess that uh, because you're a person and you're breathing, uh, that, that answer to how are you, if it's an honest answer, is going to be a mixed bag, right? It's going to have numerous things uh, in your life that are going well. And so maybe if you're a glass half full kind of person, you can just kind of compartmentalize and go, yeah, it's going good overall, you know, and you weigh the balance, things are good, right? So you're not, you don't feel like you're lying when you say that. I don't feel like I'm lying most of the time when I say that. Um, I think I'd be honest if something was terribly wrong, but uh, that's a deeper question, right? It's just, it's a complex question and it has a complex answer. And so while there may be great things going on in your life, there's probably also some really hard things going on in your life. And you know, that could be a variety of things. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's a career or lack of career problem. Uh, maybe it's a relationship that's been breaking down or is broken. I know you have those things happening in your life. I have those things happening in my life. We are, we're human beings and we are, we're, we're going through struggles. We're humans. We, we live in a sinful and fallen world and we are sinful and fallen and and so I, what I want to do, I, I just think we've always tried to press against this here at Springbrook Church since the beginning of this thing. We've tried to press against putting on a mask when you show up to church and just go, everything's fine for the, for the hour and a half that I'm in this building, everything's fine. And then I'm going to walk out the door and it's all terrible, but I'm not going to let anyone in on that. We tried to press against that. We don't want you to staple the smile to your face and then, you know, come, come to church. This is a place where you need to be. This is a place where you need to be to see Jesus move in your life. 
and to help you. You're in the right place if you come with the right attitude, the right motivation, the right desire. And we're going to talk about that because that's what the Bible addresses for us today. This is, uh, this is the place that we need to be to hear from Jesus, from his word. I'm not here to tell you what my opinions are. It's not my thing. I, I hope you know that. I think most of you know my, my motives, even though I, maybe my opinions slip out accidentally from time to time. I really just want you to hear from Jesus because Jesus is the great physician. He's the great provider. He's the greatest friend that you can ever have. So whatever may be broken in your life, whether it's a financial struggle or a health struggle or a relationship struggle, Jesus meets you in that. He is there for you in that. He is with you in all of this. And, and the good news is he's also given you people to care for you in this. So right out of the gate, even before we get into the scriptures, I want you to hear this. You need to hear this today. We all need to hear it. Jesus sees you right where you are. He knows where you're at. The, the story uh, in the Old Testament, there's a story about Abraham and Sarah, and they had this woman in the middle. There was a love triangle, never a good thing, right? Love triangle. There's this woman, this, this woman named Hagar who... Uh, was, I mean, we don't, need, we don't have time to get into all of it, right? But basically, she gets kicked, kicked to the curb, okay? Long story short, you can read it in, in the Bible on how all this happens. She gets kicked to the curb, and she's left with a child that is Abraham's child, and uh, they've been thrown out. And God meets her in the desert and tells her that he is the God who sees. He's the God who sees, That's the name that he gives to himself in that moment for her. Jesus sees you. He sees your pain. He feels it in his heart. He loves you. (laughs) I hope you know that. I mean, I know you know that, right? But do you really know that? Jesus loves you. He hasn't abandoned you. He's working in you actually working in the situation you're in right now. And you may not see how it's possible, but it will be all right. It will be. You may not see how, but Jesus is at work and your life here on earth may be miserable right now, but you got a long, long life to live, an eternal life to live. And God is going to work it all out in the end. And I love it. I love it because I've been having conversations this week. I mean, it seems like as your pastor, I love it when I have the chance to just share uh, the heart of God with you. I love it when you can share with me the things that are going on. And I've had so many conversations in the last couple of weeks with so many of you, so many of you. And the pains you're dealing with are real. The struggles are genuine. And I, I just think that God's word has met us right where we need to be today. And I love it because I'm not manufacturing it. It's like, I'm not up here going, okay, we need to talk about this. So we're going to go off book. It's in the book. It's right here. It's just in the right time. God has brought us to the solutions that we need to hear. So let's, um, let's get into this. We're going to start in verse 49 of Psalm 119. We're taking a, a walk this summer through Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, the, it's longer than actually many of the books of the Bible. Uh, it's a very long psalm, and we're just taking it through just a little bit at a time. We're taking every Sunday about 16 verses. Um, this week, we may just 
camp out on a couple, two or three of those 16. I'm just going to give you a fair warning. We may not go into the depth of all of them, but we're going to look at some things that are really important. Okay, so look at verse 49 and 50. Here's how he begins this section. It says, remember your word. He's speaking to the Lord here. This is a prayer. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. So, so what, has, what is the source of hope in this, in this sentence? It's the remembering, God's remembrance of his word. The word of God gives hope. We all need hope today. We all need hope, right? So where is hope found? It's in God's character as one who remembers what he says and does what he says. Verse 50, similar, similar here, but a little different angle. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction. Okay, so just think about that for a second. Comfort and affliction are used in the same sentence. These are, these are not the same thing, right? Affliction is, by definition, not comfortable. And so here he's saying, the comfort in my affliction is this, and he's going to define it at the end of verse 50. He says, that your promise gives me life. So the word promise is another word for the word of God. It's just used here in that way. So your promise gives me life. That is the comfort in my afflictions. Notice that the comfort in affliction is not that the affliction goes away altogether in this life. It's that God keeps his promise. That's what gives him comfort in affliction. There is an eternal view here. There is an eternal life view here. This, we, I, I say this all the time. I say we cannot miss the forest for the trees, right? And that's that's not my statement. That's a famous saying. And it's, what it means is, is don't get bogged down in the day-to-day nitty-gritty details and then miss the big picture. We do this. We all do this. We're, we're, when it comes to our suffering, when it comes to our afflictions, when it comes to the hard things in life, we miss the forest for the trees because we're in the middle of something and we cannot see the big picture in that. But we have to go to the word of God in, in order to get perspective on the big picture. We need that. And so it is fundamentally God's word, the promises of God, that are what gives us hope and comfort in the midst of affliction. So, so then, I like this because as we continue to read, we actually see the psalmist really lay out and draw out what at least one source, a major source of affliction is. Look at what he says in verse 51 through 54. It says, The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Then he says, Hot indignation seizes me because of the Wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. 
So what's he saying here? Essentially, he's drawing out one of the primary causes of affliction in the human experience. And that is, as much as we hate to say it, uh, other people. Right? Other people. The insolent, the wicked, the people who do not care for us or care for themselves significantly more than for us can be a source, not the only source of affliction, but it can be a major source of affliction. In other words, David here, who's who's writing these words most likely, um, is no stranger to people hating him and trying to harm him. In fact, his own son, uh, Absalom, created a conspiracy to overthrow David and take power for himself from the throne. And um, we see that David's own family was just such a train wreck in so many ways. We see this throughout the scriptures. We see this in uh, the story of Joseph, right? And you got Jacob and all of his kids and all of his kids hate their brother Joseph for a number of reasons. And, um, you know, we don't have time to get into all the nitty gritty, but they hated him. They tried to, they thought about killing him. Then they decided, no, it's actually more lucrative to sell him into slavery than to kill him. So let's do that. Like that's better, right? Like crazy stuff. This is in the Bible. These are things that the scriptures talk about. People can just be downright wicked. And we can experience that. And we can feel like when people cause us so much pain that God's promises or God's presence has been removed. And that's not true, right? He says here in verse 55 and 56, He says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Let's keep reading, actually. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat you with favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, he's going back to this again, right? I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Okay, so the the psalmist is saying here, the people around me, and he, he had it bad, right? He had it probably far worse than we have it when it comes to people, but I don't want to diminish or undermine your, your suffering in these things. Right? But he's saying when these people who are only out for themselves, who, who don't see the big picture, who are going to take advantage of me, who are going to try to ensnare me, who are going to try to destroy me, these people uh, seem to be uh, doing so much harm. But in that moment, what does David do? He remembers the Lord in the night, the name of the Lord in the night. And then he says it again in verse 62, at midnight I rise to praise you. In other words, he's using the word night and midnight as as a way to, I think, literally talk about like the darkest time of the night, right? Because that's when a lot of us, at least when we're going through something, we can't sleep, right? We're not sleeping. We're we're staying up. We're just up. We're thinking. the, The brain isn't shutting down. We're just like freaking out. And it's in those moments of, of the deepest darkness of our lives that we need to see the presence of the Lord. We have him with us even when we don't feel he's with us. We have his promises and we have his presence and we can lean into him. And, and I think that that's 
Just something that's so foundationally important for us to understand that when everyone around us can, can completely walk away and ruin us and try to do whatever, but we always have Jesus. We always have his presence. We always have him to cry out to. We always have his heart near to us. And um, I came across a quote here from uh, Thomas Goodwin. He was a Puritan, lived in the 1600s. He wrote a b- little book. It's little, but it's really, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's great and really hard to read because the Puritans are just hard to read sometimes. Um, but he wrote this book called The Heart of Christ. And uh, in it, he talks about Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers. And um, and at the very end of the book, the very last paragraph of this book, I, I kind of skimmed through it again this week and I came across this quote. I thought it was really helpful and I thought it was very closely tied to what we're seeing in the scripture. So let me read the quote. Here's what he says. In all miseries and distresses, you may be sure to know where to have a friend to help and care for you even in heaven, Jesus Christ. His nature, who he is, his office, what he does, his interest and relation engages him to be your support. You will find people, even friends, to be unreasonable and shut off towards you. Well, you can say to them, if you do not have compassion for me. I know one who will, one in heaven, whose heart is touched with the feeling of my struggles, and I will go cry out to him. Goodwin says people love to see themselves cared for by friends, even though they cannot help them, but Christ can and will do both. So, so this quote is basically saying, uh, even if all your friends here on earth just abandon you and leave you and can't help you, Jesus can. Okay, that's true. But here's the danger in that. Let me push back on this for just a second. The danger in this leads to a narcissistic view of the Christian faith, meaning I don't need anyone except Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. That's all it is. And that actually doesn't hold up when you read the scriptures. The scriptures do not teach a lone ranger Christianity. They do not teach us a Christianity without other people in your life. Now, those other people are flawed, just like you, sinful, just like you, and will disappoint you, just like you'll disappoint them. That's true. But we need to know that Jesus is always there for us. That is absolutely true. I agree with that. But we also need to recognize that God has given us people in the church, in our lives, who love Jesus and can be a source of friendship to us as they love Jesus, they can help us love him too. And that actually comes into the very next verse of, verse, uh, of this passage, Psalm 119.63. Look at what it says. He says, I am a companion of all who fear you. I'm a companion. So, so in the same breath, he's going... All these people are awful and they're doing terrible things and they're ruining me. They're causing my suffering. But then he says, I'm a companion to those who fear you, Lord. 
King David is not throwing away the need for human beings to come together in locking arms together to live through this affliction together. He says, I'm committed to be a companion to all who fear you. In other words, I think what David is doing is he's recognizing that Jesus is the greatest friend we have. He's the only friend who's going to never fail us, who's always going to be there for us, who we can cry out to in the darkest season of the night. Jesus is that for us. But because Jesus is that for us, we can be that for others. You see that? You see the, the gospel doctrine of Christ's friendship with sinners leads to a gospel culture of us being friends to other sinners, to fellow sinners, that we can help them carry the burdens of their lives. Paul says in Galatians that we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And what's the fulfillment of the law? It's loving your neighbor it's loving other people. It's loving Jesus first and foremost, but then that leading to loving other people to, to lead us to bear one another's burdens. We're not called to go and suffer alone. And we're, not, and we're especially not called to sit back and let others suffer alone. I get it, guys. We are Midwesterners and Midwesterners are unique people. Like, seriously, we're different. You just meet people from the West Coast or the East Coast and you'll know we're different and we're better, but we're different, right? I'm just kidding. I'm playing around. I have so many friends from those coasts and they're, they're great, but this is the thing. We are, we, we are such independent people. Like we go, no, 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 you're not going to tell me what to do. No, no, no. We're not, I don't need anyone else's help. No, if, if, if anybody comes to help me, man, I'm, I'm going to make sure I pay them so much money so that I, don't, I can't be accused of, of taking favors. That's our culture. That's our culture. And there's, there's so much good in that. There's positives in that. But it's deadly when it comes to how we view our relationships in the church. We need others to help us walk with Jesus. We do. And we need to be committed to be companions to those who love Jesus alongside of us. In verse 64, he says, The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. So here gets to the end of the passage we're looking at in, in Psalm 119. And we're going to move to the New Testament here in a moment. But this last verse says this, The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. So we could read that and go, okay, the most clear reading is that the earth has has ways of displaying God's steadfast love. And here's what I'll say. In the context of what David is saying here, I think what he's talking about is that the earth is full of people who display the steadfast love of Christ. That's, I think, like, because, yeah, a tree and a rock can show you the truths about God, right? His, his grandeur, his amazing power to create and even something of his love, right? He creates plants to give us air and that's, that's directly tied to his love for us, right? All these things. Yes, true. But, but are you going to like snuggle up to a tree for companionship? If you do, I got some people you should talk to because that's just weird, right? Like you're going to, you need people in your life and the Lord has given us people. He's filled this world with people that love and show the love of Christ, and the church is the display of that. It should be. 
It should be. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus is a source of friendship to us. Yes, absolutely. I don't ever want to diminish that. I never want, there's no one on earth who's going to respond to you and be ready to hear you and, uh, and be, be just engaged with you like Jesus will, right? There's very few people in your life that you can call in the middle of the night and say, I need help. There might be some, maybe you're blessed with that, but most of us are not uh, going to have a lot of people who we can just cry out to at all times. But Jesus is that for us. And yet, Jesus, one of the greatest gifts he gives us is others, other people, to love us and help us. So, so let me take you to the New Testament where I think these themes, these concepts are articulated um, a little bit more clearly and, and on display. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So we preached through 2 Corinthians. We started it probably a year ago. Um, it's been a while since we've been in 2 Corinthians 1 in any meaningful way. So let's, let's look at this, but let's look at this through the lens of what we've just seen, right? This Old Testament explanation of uh, suffering and the word of God is our comfort in that, but, but that we get to also step into the lives of others as well. Let's Let's look at what Paul says here, though. This is, this is really astounding. Um, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then look, look at here how he describes the Father, God the Father. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Okay. I don't know, but if I was to ask you to just list out five characteristics of God, like just think, what are five things that kind of define who God is, what his character is like, what he, what he does? I don't know, maybe it would now, but I don't think that comfort would have made the list. I don't know that we see God in this light most of the time. But God is a God of all comfort. I think we picture God a little bit uh, meaner than this, right? I think we do. I think we kind of picture God like, like the old guy on his porch just shouting at the kids, get off my grass, right? Like, just kind of leave me alone. I don't really want to deal with you. I think that's the perception of God that a lot of us have. Um, we, and then that gets compounded when life gets hard. We start to go, well, see, here's the evidence. God's just kind of mean. Like, look at what he's doing to me. Look at what he's done. Look at how he's making me suffer, right? But that's not how the Apostle Paul shares of God's heart. He says God is the, God of, the father of all mercies and all comfort. Let's keep reading. It gets better from here. It says, this God comforts us in all our affliction. You remember Psalm 119, where we just started reading this? Verse 50, this is my comfort in all my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Here we're seeing this direct connection again between the comfort we receive from God and our affliction, that God comforts us in all our affliction but don't miss this next line, you guys. This is so important. These next two words. So that, okay, 
When you read so that, what that's telling you is that what he's about to say is directly connected to what he just said. So God comforts us in all our affliction so that something can happen. So that what happens? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you catch that? That was kind of a long sentence. Here's what he's saying. God comforts us so that we can comfort others with the same comfort that we get from God. This is how the church is meant to function. Man, we've got a lot of broken people in this church. We do. You know you are. I, I am. We're not, we're not a bunch of like, we know-it-alls, got it all together. Sometimes we might pretend we are, but we're, we're not. We know that. We are a giant just bag of misfit toys here. That's, that's what we are. And so what's our role in that? Our role is to receive the comfort we've, we've been given through Christ and then to bring that comfort to others. Paul says in verse 5, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Um, here's something we need to just talk about for a moment. A lot of times when we suffer, we think, oh, poor me. God's mean to me. I don't understand why God's doing this. But what we don't pivot to, which is what we need to pivot to, is that as we suffer, we share in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus suffered, and so we can suffer with him. Like, there is no one in the universe that was as afflicted as Jesus. And he was afflicted by God for you. And so the affliction we may receive in life, whether that be, again, health, money, family, whatever, relationship breakdown, whatever it is, our suffering, first of all, does not ever compare to the sufferings of Christ fully. His suffering is so much worse than ours because he was the only truly sinless person. So the suffering of a truly sinless person just eclipses all the suffering of sinful people. But as he brings us into him, our suffering is shared in his suffering. And so we need to recognize that and go, and I've been so encouraged by some of the folks I've talked to in the last month or two in, from the church here who are sharing with me their struggles and, and had a conversation with someone who just said, you know, Jesus, Jesus' body was broken my body can be broken too and I, and I can suffer with him. That's the, that's the kind of attitude that Christ wants from us. Whatever it is, like we, we can see this in Christ. So we share abundantly, abundantly, not a little bit, abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And then it says this. This is, this is good news, right? So through Christ, through him, we share abundantly in comfort too. So it's not just suffering. We get the comfort that comes from Christ's resurrection as well. He says, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. 
So Paul's saying, as we're afflicted, Corinth, we're being afflicted for your comfort and your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So don't miss the connection. Your sufferings are what directly lead to your comfort. That's interesting. Not sure exactly how that works, but that's the, what the word says, and that's what we, what we know is true, that God comforts us in and through affliction as we lean into Jesus. It says if, uh, in verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now, as we read this, you might be thinking, well, okay, Paul's going through kind of an easy time in his life and he's experiencing some good comfort and so he just wants us to, to experience that. But that's not what's happening. If we keep reading into the next paragraph, we, we know this is not the case. Look at what he says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So Paul's in Asia. Most people think he's speaking about the experience he had in Ephesus. Uh, when he planted, helped to plant the church in Ephesus, uh, man, things went really bad, really sideways. He almost got killed uh, in a riot. Uh, it was wild. You can read about that in the book of Acts. Um, but he says to the Corinthians, in hindsight, he said, we don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Then look at how he describes it. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We despaired of life itself. Think about those words. This is not a little thing. This is, this is deep and dark depression in Paul's life. He's despairing of life. He says, indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. He's saying, God sent us here to kill us. That's how it felt. That's how it felt. Notice that word, felt. It's not what it was. It's what it felt like in that moment. But then he says this, but that, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So here, Paul pivots the Corinthians to understand the promises of God. And Paul is preaching the promises of God to himself in this moment. What are the promises of God? Verse 10 says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril. God has done this through Jesus, past tense, this is what he's done to deliver us. Remember what God has done, past tense. Then he says, and he will deliver us. So this is present hope. This is a momentary hope. Okay, God did that for us through Jesus. He's going to meet us here. And we know that this is a present tense because the next sentence is future. Look at it says, on him, on God, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Future forward-looking hope 
in God's work. So you have the affirmation of God's past work, which for us, we look at God's past work and go, look at the cross. Look at what Jesus for us did for us at the cross. Look at how Christ saved us through the cross. If God is going to go to that length to save me from eternal death, then I should trust him to care for me right here and now. Right? We can, ha- we can pivot that to the momentary, I am going through some really dark junk right now and I don't know what to do with it, but I trust that because of God's faithfulness and his character and his love for me displayed on the cross, I trust him right here and now to meet me and love me and serve me and, and help me through this. And then that pivots us to what do we have to fear for eternity? Christ has secured for us an eternal hope. And so, yeah, maybe the, the 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years you have here are terrible. Maybe every wo- waking moment of your existence here is awful but what does that compare to an eternity with Jesus where it will, will, it will be amazing? This is where Paul later in 2 Corinthians says that, it, that, this is, that these afflictions are light and momentary afflictions that, will, that prepare us for an eternal weight of glory, right? So he's contrasting the temporary, momentary struggles that are preparing us for an eternity of glory with Jesus. Let's keep perspective here, right? If we just had a visual, I don't have the visual, right? But I, I, I saw, I think Francis Chan did this at one point years back, but he just, he took a rope and this super long rope, and he went all the way around this auditorium, and he said, this rope represents life eternally, and do you know where your earthly life lands on that? He just puts a little tiny pinprick on that rope and says, that's your life on earth, and the rest of it is all future. That's true. It, and, that, and he even says, that just, that's, this isn't even an accurate representation, right? That, that, this even falls short of eternity. But that just gives you that visual. Jesus is at work. He's doing something. And what he's doing in you is preparing you for an eternity with him in glory. So again, we see Jesus meeting us here in our afflictions. But don't forget that Paul is not saying that we do this alone. We do these things. We go through these things with with others. We are comforted by Christ and Christ uses us and others to comfort one another. And then verse 11, he doubles down on that again. Look at what he says to the Corinthians. He says, you also in nice, rich, comfortable Corinth, right? Paul's getting beat up in a riot in, in Asia and the Corinthians are just loving life, living, living to their heart's desire, right? He's writing to this church and he says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on your behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. We need people to come alongside of us, to pray for us. The greatest thing we can do for one another is pray. Because the only one who can actually make any difference in life is Jesus. So we should go to him and ask him for help, right? We, we should pray for one another. We should walk through life together. We should be 
caring for each other, being the shoulder someone cries on, being able to help someone process, always pointing them back to the hope of the gospel. So, so here's, here's where we need to go from here. Let me just give you some practical things. Okay, I've already said it, but number one is this. You need other people in your life. Every man needs men around him. Every woman needs women around her. You need people. Your spouse may be wonderful, but I don't believe that's enough. I think God has called us to go through life together with, with a broader group, right? And so we need fellow believers to walk through this life with. We need to go through life with someone. But let me say this. This might sound controversial. This might maybe, I don't know. I don't, it doesn't matter if it does or not, but I don't think this is controversial. Um, I don't think that everyone in the church, in this local church, needs to know deeply everyone else in this church. I don't think that's the goal. Okay, a lot of times we think the goal is everyone needs to know everyone. That's impossible. Now, you might know everyone on a surface level, but you're not going to know everyone on a deep, meaningful level. You can't. You don't have the capacity for that. Now, you extroverts in the room might be going, yes, I do. Watch me, right? You don't have the capacity for that. Most people have the capacity for a very small circle of true friends, and everybody else is just kind of on the periphery, right? It's just, they're, they're there, maybe they're acquaintances. And this is one of the things that we've, we have to fight against. I'm going to rail against social media for one more minute here. Okay, ready? Um, social media has created in us a, a belief that friends are everybody that we know. Now, because Facebook calls them friends doesn't make them your friends. They're looky-loos, right? That's what they are. They're just people that maybe you knew at some point in your life, but think, go through your friend list and go, how many of these people actually know me? Not, what I, not just what I share on this thing, but actually know me. How many, then go deeper. How many of these people would I call in an emergency? Uh, yeah, that brings it down a lot, right? I don't think that everyone in the church needs to know everyone in the church perfectly. I think everyone should feel connected. But here's the thing. Everybody in this church needs to have somebody else in this church who cares for them. That's the goal. And I don't think we're there, by the way, but that's what we need to, where we need to be. It can't be everyone, but it needs to be someone. The church should have uh, people around every person that can be meaningful, genuine relationship. We got to get it out of our heads that we have to know everyone. I think that's just an impossible goal. But if you have no one in this church that you could say, I'm going to call them if something really goes wrong. If the junk hits the fan in my life, uh, I'm going to call this person or these people. If you don't have anybody, like that's a problem and we need to work on that. We need to help you with that. I'm willing to help you with that. But everybody needs someone. Everybody needs someone. Doesn't be, can't be everyone. 
So, so think about that, consider it. And if you're thinking, you know, I don't really know anybody in this church. Um, and then, then if that's where you're at, and then you pivot to, well, that's the church's fault, uh, repent and actually see the problem in your own heart, okay? Because it's not the church's fault. We're here. We're ready to go. There, you know, you, we might be accused we're kind of a smaller church, right? So there, there's friend groups. You can call them cliques if you want. Uh, I don't think there's a single group of people in this church that will turn anyone away if you walk up to the circle. That's not the heart of this church. Now, can we do better to go out and actually bring people in? Yeah, we can. We sure can. Absolutely. But you can also, as a functioning human person, actually like meet people too. So it's a, it's a two-way street here. I don't mean to be a jerk about that. I just want you to hear that because I think it's important. There's a, it, there's, it's very easy to blame the church, whatever that means. Do you mean the building? Because that's nothing. Do you mean the people? Well, then you're getting to it. Okay, so you can blame everybody, but we got to look at ourselves too. And here's how you do it. This is really, this is like, this is be friends 101. See, find someone you don't know introduce yourself, and at some point set up a time to hang out with them. It's not rocket science, guys. I know, I know, we've, I know we've, like really, um, we've really made a, a mess of this because we can't like interact with other human beings very well. Invite someone out to lunch. Have them over for coffee. It's not, it's not crazy. And I doubt anyone's going to turn you down. I don't turn down free lunches. I don't turn them down. Charlie knows I don't turn them down. He invited me out for lunch and we had a great time. We don't turn down those kind of things. But you got to take the initiative too. Everyone in this church needs to know someone in this church. That's the hope. And it all comes down to what God has called us to be as the church. Companions of those who love Jesus walking through life together. It's a journey. We're not there. We got to get there. And it takes every one of us to get there. So I want to encourage you towards that. But here's the main thing. Let's get back to Jesus here, right? Let's not end it on ourselves. You have to know that it's all foundationally based on the friendship we have with Jesus. If Jesus is your best friend, then he can call you and empower you to befriend others. That's how it works. It doesn't work the other way around. It works the gospel working out of your life, seeing Jesus as the greatest friend we have, and that leading us to befriend one another. Let's rest in this. Let's rest in the truth that Jesus is our greatest companion. He's our greatest friend. He loves us better than anyone ever could. And because of that, we're called to move forward in friendship with others. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are the greatest friend we have. We thank you that you died for us. You, did, you laid down your life for your friends. That you displayed the love of God on the cross. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be drawn into that and from that, that we would be drawn out to others. Would you do that in us? 
Would you help us in these things? Would you build the kind of culture in this church that we long to see, that we need to see? Only you can do it, God. And you love us and you're working in it. We pray that we'd be patient in the process and love one another well in it. And we just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's take some time to, to...